Thank you, Caleb. That's a blessing to us. It's good to have you here. And your dad and your grandfather were always an encouragement to me when I was in the Buckeye State. And I'm sure they're pleased that you're serving the Lord. And we're grateful tonight for the orchestra and for your singing and for your presence here tonight. And your desire, thank you this morning for your tenderness toward the Lord, your desire to get on your knees and pray. What an encouragement that was. And how I know God will bless that if we stay on our knees as a church. Now, if you love somebody, you don't ever say anything mean to them. We've been singing all these nice songs about love tonight. And if you love somebody, you don't ever say anything harsh or anything direct. Am I right about that? Of course not. You're laughing because that's not true. Matter of fact, you know, if you really think about it, one of the ways to really love somebody is to... Well, a lot of George is telling the truth. He's right. It's to tell the truth. And sometimes in very sharp tones. And you're going to see tonight that God calls a guy to actually use sarcasm and satire. He's pretty, he's pretty straight, pretty direct. One of the ways, God, can I remind you tonight that one of the ways that God loves his people is he sends them people with a sharp rebuke. It might be a pastor, Sunday school teacher, your mother. It might be your neighbor. It might be somebody on the radio. But he sends a sharp rebuke. You know, if your little child's running out in the street, it's not good to say, now, sweetie pie, might you come back and, you know, we'll have some macaroni and cheese and hot dogs, which all kids love. You just go, stop, come back. Don't go out there. We're in a book of Amos, so we got to have our track shoes on tonight. Have you ever seen, uh, ever seen the sign by the side of the road, prepare to meet your God? And then you put your seatbelt on, right? <laughs> prepare to meet your God. Where does that come from? It comes right here from Amos. Amos cried out to Israel, prepare to meet your God. And he's talking about meeting God in judgments. Prepare to meet thy God is a very good thing to think about. Because we all must prepare to meet our God. Because we never know when we are going to meet our God. This is a quotation from Amos, who's one of the most interesting, colorful characters of the Bible. The prophecy here just thunders out. Take, a book, take your book, uh, the Bible, open to Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. In the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Do you get the geography here? Tekoa is south, it's in Judah, south of Jerusalem, near Bethlehem. Israel is north. God is taking a sheep herder guy from down around Bethlehem, kind of a backwoods, southern Tennessee windsucker preacher type guy. He's sending him to the palace in Israel, and there, this is a time of great prosperity for them when they're expanding there, and they think they can do no wrong. But the prophecy says, and then he said in verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion. Again, we're talking about Judah here. And he utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the pastures of the shepherds mourn at the top of, Car- and the top of Carmel withers. And we were in the Holy Land. One of the first places we went was Haifa, which is in the Carmel Mountains. It's way up north. Here's what he's saying. I call the prophet from Tekoa. He gives this prophecy from God and it roars and you hear it all the way to Carmel. He didn't use a soft voice. He used a loud voice and he's crying out here. 
Amos is not a, the book of Amos is not a neatly arranged scholarly argument with beautiful poetry. It's more of a diatribe. It comes from many different angles to arrest and convict the reader or the listener. And it does have many memorable, provocative, rhetorical flourishes. This old, this old, um, shepherd fig picker guy had a way with words, even though he wasn't uh, a professional uh, a, a scholar or priest or prophet. Amos, was, Amos is direct. Amos is biting. Amos is satire. Amos uses sarcasm. Israel set up a calf worship in the north, Baal worship. And it's, that's why it's interesting and significant that Amos does things like this. In, verse, in chapter uh, 4, he talks to the women of Israel, which is a kind of a fun part, ladies, if you don't mind, and says, you cows of Bashan. So he wasn't like looking for a return engagement when he went up there to speak. He called them cows, which is a play on words, of course. When we went to the north of Israel, we went to a place where they have discovered like a little golden calf. They worship calves there. And this was not pleasing to the Lord. It's in the Golan Heights, cows of Bashan, Golan Heights. We went there. We went exactly there. We stood there and looked over under the Golan Heights. I kind of went away from the group and stood up on a little knoll and looked out over uh, a place where uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the battlements were all still dug in there. This is the place that he's talking about. Amos was a shepherd, and later in chapter 7, we're going to see that he was a grower of figs. And he was sent to the capital city of Israel, the, the capital of the northern kingdom, to deliver oracles from God. We'll tell you a little bit what oracles are. Very special word. He came to deliver oracles from God. They were oracles of judgment. He was pressured. He was intimidated by those in power. But he wouldn't compromise. He brought a series of pronouncements of woe to the countries around Israel and to Judah and then to Israel. He was a country preacher, an exhorter from the South, kind of a country parson, goes to Washington kind of a guy. I want you to listen as I read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brother, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And this is what he did with Amos. So Amos wasn't a scholar. He wasn't a a prophet. Although God made him a prophet, he wasn't a professional, but he was chosen by God. He was sent by God, and he was burdened by God. Have you ever had this experience? But over the years, I've been to a lot of pastors' meetings. I like to go to pastors' meetings, and so hanging out with pastors is fun. You meet some good guys that way. But every once in a while, you'll be at a pastors' meeting, and the preacher up front will be saying, you know, the the, the hope of America is in this room right now. And then you'll kind of look around and think, "Uh uh-oh. Like, we might be in trouble because I know some of these guys. And if this is the hope of, I mean, we're all just a, you know, we're just a bunch of fig pickers from Tacoa. We're a bunch of sheep handling uh, guys. We're not, we're, we're not um, the sharpest, the brightest, the most uh, powerful uh, guys. Really, God uses people like that 
common, regular, ordinary people, but they've got to have a burden. They, and this is what Amos' name means, burden bearer. He had a burden from God, which means you have, a, you have a chunk of God's truth, an oracle from God stuck on your heart with weight. You ever have that? You have the weight of God's word on your heart? Because God's people ought to have the weight of God's word on their heart all the time. A burden. And this is what Amos has a burden. So give me a, a man with a burden. I, there was a guy like that, and he was rough as all get out, rough as, uh, rough son as they get. Uh, uh, his name was Lester Roloff. He had a girl's home down in Texas, and he just like preached like nobody's business. I heard him live a few times. He had a message he was famous for called Pawn in the Valley. I don't remember what it was about, but it was a great message. And, and he was a great guy. He had a radio program, and this radio program, would go, a lot of people would make fun of Lester Roloff. You know, because he's kind of, he would, do you remember Lester Olaf? He'd start his old broadcast, one sat alone beside the roadway. He didn't sing as good as me, though. He was just an old, but he had a wonderful way of singing. Just a very common, sweet way of singing. He'd sing that song, and he would open his broadcast, and he helped these girls and boys' homes and so forth. He had this radio broadcast, and a lot of people would make fun of Lester Olaf. A lot of people would say, well, he isn't that bright, he isn't that sharp. Maybe not, maybe not. But over in Ypsilanti, a few years ago, there was a girl laying in her bed listening to the radio at night, listening to Lester Roloff. She listened to Lester Roloff, and that was one of the things that made her decide she went to college, they would go to college and maybe serve the Lord in some way. I married her, so I think Lester Roloff, well, I'm grateful for guys like that. Lester Roloff. I forgot about Lester Roloff, but I was listening to Chuck Swindoll preach on this very passage. He brought that up. You might want to do that, by the way. Go on the net, listen to, listen to well, Lester Roloff or Chuck Swindoll. They're like totally different guys, but... Chuck's and all does a beautiful job in this passage. So if I butcher it, that's what you need to do. All right. There were a couple of brothers. They moved all of England from horseback. It was circuit riding preachers. A couple of brothers. They wrote hymns. One of them especially wrote hymns. They were just, one of them called himself a, a brand plucked from the burning because when he was a little boy, he was delivered from a house fire and his mother was sure that he was to be used of God and he would be used of God to, he and his brother, the two of them, to shake two continents for God. He threw him out of the Church of England. Anybody know their names? Yeah, Wesley, you got it. John and Charles Wesley. John and Charles Wesley. I got a son named Wesley. That's not because I'm Wesleyan in my theology. That's because I admire this guy's pluck. They threw him out of the Church of England. You remember their names, John and Charles Wesley. What was saying? They would get up on their father's gravestone and they would preach because they were thrown out of the Church of England. Now, what was the name of the bishop that threw him out? Anybody know that? Yeah, right. If I gave you a thousand dollars and you didn't Google it, you couldn't figure it out. You couldn't tell me tonight. Nobody really knows. But we know John and Charles Wesley. Why is that? Why is it? Why do we know these guys? Because they had a burden. Because they had something to say. Because they went all around England crying out for God. And they said something different. They weren't afraid. They sometimes got drug. Wesley was little. And sometimes women drug him around. By the... His own wife did. <laughs> Can you imagine having that kind of conflict in your home? That you... we had... Lois and I have had some tough times. But she has never drugged me around by the hair. <laughs> I knew you would be kind of cautious with your laughter about that one. The country preacher then calls out Israel for making a big show of worship and religion, but being hypocrites and not caring about the poor, for instance, violating God's law and being immoral. The world that we're living in is starving for a word from God. 
And God often speaks through common men and common women who raised up outside of the common mode of training and outside of regular paths that a man or a woman might take to rise to prominence or influence. And this is the kind of guy that Amos was. Amos, the burden bearer. You don't need an education or a pedigree if you have a burden from God. An education is a great tool if you can get it. You understand? But there are a lot of people with an education that don't amount to much of anything for God because they don't have a burden for God. Now a person with an education and a burden, that's a wonderful tool in the master's hand. There's no reference to Amos' family. He's simple and anonymous, and he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Tekoa is a country village off the beaten track, six miles south of Bethlehem. He's come from a small town. In chapter 7, you learn a little bit more about the background of this character, Amos. It might be interesting before we look at anything else, just to take a look at chapter 7, because in the middle of... uh, There are five visions in this section, but the visions are interrupted. It's almost like when it's perhaps as Amos is out there telling these visions that he had from the Lord, uh, uh, he's interrupted by the the people that are in power. In chapter 7, verse 10, let's just read a whole thing here. When Amaziah, priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. So this guy, who is a kind of a false priest and a false religious system in the north, you're not supposed to be doing that. He goes to the king and says, make him shut up. We can't bear this. This is interesting, isn't it? Here's Amos, the burden bearer, and the, and the, and the, and the, the, um, the paid clergy are saying, tell him to be quiet. For Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. He said, go back home, is what he's saying. There eat bread and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary and it is the royal residence. He's outside the palace or he's inside the palace. He's crying out against the king. He's saying, you guys are going down. God told me to tell you that. He gave me oracles, he gave me sermons, and he gave me visions. Wanted you to know what's going to happen. And it may happen soon. That's what he's saying. Then Amos says to Amaziah, I wonder what he's going to say, right? I was no prophet, nor the son of a prophet. He's like, I didn't ask for this job. He said, I was a sheep breeder. And a sheep breeder, sheep herders, that's a low on the social strata, way low. And a tender of sycamore fruit, the poor ate them. People that worked with sycamore fruit would actually, they would have their hands marked by it. You could tell by looking that they were poor folk that worked with sheep and sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not spout against the house of Isaac. What's he going to say now? Well, it says, therefore, thus saith the Lord. I got a word for you, Amaziah. I got a direct word for you. Now, he's really careful and sweet, and he's a positive thinker when he says this. He says, your wife is going to be a harlot in the city. Yeah. Can you imagine? When he, <laughs> you think it's quiet in here. Can you imagine how quiet that would have been there? They're going to kill this guy. He just told the, the high up, you know, priest that his wife was going to be a harlot. There's some pretty harsh words. Your sons and daughters are going to die. going to fall by the sword. Your land will be divided by survey line. And you will die in a defiled land. Israel shall surely be led away captive from its own land. And that's what happened 40, 50 years later. Is what did happen. 
God had sent Amos. Amos wasn't making this up on his own. He had a burden from God. He came to say it, but we know a little bit more about him now, don't we? And so he's shouting in the street, and Amaziah the priest comes out to run him off, and it doesn't work out very well. It's interesting when I think about ministry, it's, it is, is, is a long, hard road for me to kind of gather whatever training I've been able to get in ministry. So I had a list of people that God used that didn't have any formal training for ministry. I'm not suggesting that you don't have formal training for ministry. It's a great idea if you can. I'm just saying there's a lot of people with formal training for ministry that are all puffed up with pride and they don't have a burden from God and they don't have an unction from God. They don't have an anointing from God and they're not going to be used of God. It'd be a lot better just to get your Bible and go out there and tell people, hey, you're sinning, look at this. And this is how you get free of that sin. Just be straight up. A lot of people do a lot for God with a burden. That you, you know, you, you, If you have an education and no burden, you're, wor- you're worthless, really, for God that way. If you have an education of burden, then you might be mighty in the hands of God. Here are some men who were used of God that never had any, edu- any formal education for ministry. Vance Havner was one of them. Went all over the country, used of, of God. A.W. Tozer, anybody ever heard of him? I got a kick out of this. A.W. Tozer, D.L. Moody, G. Campbell Morgan. It's like if you didn't have letters after your name, you got them in front of your name, right? A.W. Tozer, D.L. Moody. Uh, he would have gone to college if he could have. He started one. It's a pretty good school. G. Campbell Morgan. Uh, guess who else? Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon goes to college, he sits down, he waits, and there's a kind of a miscommunication. He takes it as not the, the God's will for him to continue, and so he goes off, and he did okay. Leonard Ravenhill, David Wilkerson, just let, Leonard Ravenhill. You ever go on YouTube? You want to get your ear twisted? <laughs> go listen to Leonard Ravenhill. Yeah. Sometimes erudition can be a trap, can lead you dangerously astray in pride. And there's much to be said for simplicity of heart. One of the most wonderful examples of this that I've ever seen happened when we were in Israel. We were in this beautiful place. We're having dinner one night and had an opportunity to sit with a man who was well-trained, well-educated, very bright, very educated man. And we're talking with him, and we're just kind of going back and forth. It's very interesting to talk to a guy like that. You always want to ask him questions. You want to learn things. One of the things that we learned while we were talking is that he wasn't really sure that hell was a literal fire, that it really was a hell. And so I kind of thought, oh, wow, you know, this is interesting. How are we going to have a polite conversation now? At one point, his wife says, honey, why don't you go ahead and eat? He goes, I'm having fun talking to the young man. I didn't agree with his theology about hell, but I loved it that he called me a young man. I didn't really know quite how to handle that. You know, here's a guy who just denied hell. And I said, well, I believe in it. He says, I hope that's not the first thing you tell people. I was looking at Lois. Lois at times like this is a little bit like a volcano, you know. She's just sitting over there. I'm like, mm, what's she going to say, you know, what's she going to say? And I'm here, she cleared her thro- throat, and she just said, well, you know, when I was a girl growing up in the church that I went to, um, they believed in hell. My pastor believed in hell. And I don't think I would be saved if my pastor hadn't told me about hell. It was pretty powerful, I thought. I just sat back and I said, yeah, go get them, girl. What, what else can you say? Because a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument, especially a false argument. And I, I, by the way, really bright people know there is a hell. Well, look, Israel was in a spirit of self-sufficiency, of luxury, of moral corruption, of social injustice, and God calls Amos to cry out against it. And his words are preserved forever in the book of God, the Bible. We have it on our lap tonight. 
Let me give you an outline of Amos. This is going to be really simple. In chapter 1, after the little introduction that I gave you to chapter 2 and verse 16, which is the end of chapter 2, you have oracles of judgment. Oracles are direct words from God given to a prophet to give to the people without changing them at all. It's like, here are my words, go say what I said. Now you see there's an element of oracles in preaching. We ought to preach the word of God. Here's what God said. And so there were oracles of judgment uh, that he gave. And he often would say, thus says the Lord. Over and over in the Bible, it says, thus says the Lord. Thus says, it's over and over. I, I won't show you them here, but you study and mar- highlight these sometimes, how frequently in the prophets it says, this is what the Lord says. And yet there are people that come along and say, well, the Bible is a collection of myths or it's a collection of you know uh, things that people put together that were uh, devoted or whatever. No, no, it's not. These people said, this is what God said specifically. Thus says the Lord. And so if the Lord didn't say that, these are not nice people. These are not good people. These are not, this is not a good book. No, God did say this stuff. And so they're oracles. In chapter 1, verse 3 to chapter 2 and verse 3, you have oracles against all of Israel's neighbors. It's almost like he's going, you know those bad people in Tyre and Sidon, and they're going, yeah, they're bad. God's going to judge them. Yeah, that's right. It's almost like you get the feeling. And Ammon and all the bad things, you know, for three offenses and for four, I'm going to bring judgment on them. You can almost hear them going, yeah, get them. Because they're bad. They're not like us. They're bad. And then he goes all the way around. He gives oracles of judgment on all of his neighbors. And he even includes Judah in this. His hometown boy, he goes under Judah. And then, of course, what does he do? He's got him not, he's got him, okay. And then he says, and there's going to be judgment on you. And then he really lays it on him because the oracles of judgment against Israel go from chapter 3 and verse 1 to chapter 6 and verse 14. Oracles of judgment. And then there are sermons. You might want to know, what's the difference between an oracle and a sermon? Well, sermons should be based on the oracles of God. Sermon, God gifts people to speak about his word. God gifts people to do that. That's something God delights in using, the foolishness of preaching. Thank God. He uses the foolishness of preaching, declaration, proclamation, heralding the word of God. I do it. You can do it too. But we base our sermons on the oracles of God. And so he says to Amos, I want you to give them, thus saith the Lord. And then I want you to kind of, I want you to open up and I want you to preach to him. I want you to let him have it. He says in chapter 3 and verse 1, Hear the word against you. In chapter 4, To the women of Israel, you, you cows of Bashan. You, you already referred to that, right? You ask your husbands to bring you wine. You're going down. You're going to get a hook in your nose. They're going to drive you off into captivity. Did you read that part? Oh. You wouldn't sleep well at night after a message like this, would you? Hook in your wife's nose. Drag them off into captivity. Your wife's going to be a prostitute. Your kids are going to die. Have a good day. You see, I just think it's interesting. I like to be positive and nice and, you know, gentle. I like to be that way. It's, you know, you win more flies with, you know, you've heard that old saying. It's not in the Bible, but we say it, you know. But it is interesting. It's really hard to make that work with some of these prophecies of the Bible. I wonder if God would have us cry out against the sin in our culture more than we do. I wonder. You say, well, leave it to the prophets. Okay, okay. Shouldn't we have a prophetic voice? Shouldn't we sometimes say, that is wrong, and God will judge you for that? Well, I don't know. You know, just read the book of Amos, and it's just loaded with judgment. It never lets up until you get all the way to chapter 9, almost to the end of chapter 9. It's just heavy judgment and not a, not a single break in the clouds of 
judgment and woe is just saying oracles of judgment, sermons of judgment. He says in chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, I don't like it when you go to church and you pretend to worship me. It's kind of what he's saying. Chapter 5 and verse 21, listen to what he says. I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. It seemed like a sacred assembly would be a good thing. No, you're, you're disobeying God, and then you're coming to worship. You're hypocrites. Will you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings? I do not accept them, nor will I regard your fatted peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your song. I don't want to hear you sing. Isn't that something? If you're not going to obey me, don't come to church and sing. If you're not going to obey me, don't bring an offering to church. I want you to obey me first. They don't want you to sing. They don't want you to bring your offerings. This is what he's saying. Pretty straight. Take away from me the noise of your song. I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's what I want to see. I want to see you do justice and be right and righteous. And he cares about right, by the way. Um, it, if you're going to skip dessert, let me give you a tip. You're going to skip dessert because it's sweet, okay? And you're going to think, ah. So here's what you do. When you think, oh, I was going to have dessert and that would be sweet, or a piece of candy that would be sweet, here's what you do. Think of the sweetness of Christ. Today I'm driving home and I'm thinking of the sweetness of Christ. What is one of the things about Christ that's sweet to me? One is his justice, his absolute white, hot, pure, perfect justice. I don't want to be on the barbed hook of his justice, right? I want to be delivered from his justice by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But it is beautiful that there is one who governs the universe, who is absolutely just, and he will one day have his way, and everything will be right because he's right, because he's just. And every time you see things that are not right and not fair and not just, remember, there is a ruler that one day will rule with great justice. That's a wonderful, isn't that sweet? That's dessert for the soul right there. Think about the sweetness and then tell him, Jesus, I adore you for your justice and for your righteousness. And then whenever you crave another dessert, think another thing about the sweetness of Christ. Here we have sermons of judgments. He's rejecting their festivals and solemn assemblies and religious activity. That doesn't impress God, not alone. He doesn't, he's not impressed with their singing alone. Singing doesn't compensate for sinfulness. So you have uh, chapter 4 there. We talked about a bit. Amos frequently uses a sarcastic tone, obviously, to tell people to go ahead. He says, go ahead and worship in Bethel. Go ahead and bring your tithes. Tithe, tithe all the time. Go ahead. But he's being sarcastic. He's not telling them that they should be doing that. It's sarcasm. And over and over again in Amos, he says, you, the, I've done these things for you, and you have not returned. Chapter 4 and verse 9. Let's go back to verse 6. Listen to this. He says, I've done all these things for you, and they haven't made you return to me. Chapter 4, verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, lack of bread in all your places, and you haven't returned to me. What's he saying? I made you hungry. I did that for you. (laughs) You lost your job. I did that for you. And you still didn't repent. I'm, I'm here for you. I made you hungry, but you didn't repent. Listen to this. I withheld rain, verse 7. It, when there were still three months of the harvest, oh, it's like that wasn't nice. Yeah, it was, because they needed to repent, right? I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, where it did not rain. The part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city for a drink of water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. He says, I did you a favor. I sent intermittent drought, so you guys had to go from city to city to get some water. 
but you didn't return to me. He was doing that to chastise them to return because he loved them. He was getting their attention. Verse 9, I blasted you with blight and mildew. Your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, your locust, and a locust then devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me. Do you see a theme here anywhere? I wanted you to return to me, but you have not returned to me. One of the first things we want to do, we don't want to assume every bad thing that happens in our life is chastisement or God's judgment or chastisement. We don't want to assume that, but we do want to always ask. God, it doesn't hurt anything. God, I wrecked my car. Is there anything that I've done that's not pleasing to you? God, I'm sick. Is there anything that's not? You don't need to be afraid of that. Go search the words. If there's something, make, make everything right. If he's saying return to me, it might be a mercy that something bad has happened to you. It might be God's mercy that he's saying, I did this for you and you didn't return to me. Well, how loud am I going to have to shout? What am I going to have to do to get you to return to me? We want to be the kind of people that when we, oh, Jesus is whispering to me. I want to do what he says as soon as I hear him say it. That's the the kind of heart I want to have. And I just, what was it? The uh, old Wesleyan hymn. Sharp is the focus of an eye, oh God, my conscience make. It's like I said, I want a principle within godly fear, righteous fear, sharp as the focus of an eye, oh God, my conscience make. As soon as something's wrong, help me to focus it. No. This is what he wants. This is interesting. Well, there's much, much more here. So let's look on. So there are visions, there, there are oracles of judgment, there are sermons of judgment, and then there are visions of judgment. Very interesting. Five visions of judgment that are in uh, the prophecy of Amos. There's a vision of locust in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, like devouring locusts. Does that remind you of anything? If you heard about Joel, you know that's common there. There's a vision of God's consuming fire in judgment, chapter 7, verses 4 through 6, the next section. Then there's a vision of a plumb line, like God says, I'm going to measure to see if you're straight. And if you're crooked, I'm going to judge you in every way. So you got to understand, Amos is getting these visions from God. Amos has these visions from God. He's I'm just telling you the visions that I got. I didn't make this stuff up. I'm just telling you. I'm here to say, I see locusts and they're eating up your stuff. (laughs) I also see a fire and it's burning up your stuff. And I see a plumb line and God says, you're crooked. (laughs) So so it's wonderful. Good communicators. If you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a youth worker, use concrete examples. The Bible is full of concrete examples. Do not just lay propositions on those kids. Don't just tell them the truth. Tell them the truth with pictures and with stories. Tell them that. Don't, just, don't, don't make Sunday school boring. Shame on you if you do that. Don't make Awana boring. Use stories. Use pictures. Use illustrations. Because this is what the guys in the Bible, even when they were letting them have it, they were like, you're like a fire, like a locust. And this is from the Lord, Jeremiah. God gave Jeremiah specific illustrations like that. You should use them too. If you don't, that's not a sign of your orthodoxy. You're just dumb for not doing that. And then there's the vision of summer fruit. I love you, but that isn't smart. Um, vision of summer fruit. The idea is here's you got a basket of fruit and it's rotting. It's ripe for judgment. You ever have those gnats flying around your house? And you're like, where do those come from? You can't find them. They're just like, they like spontaneously generate. No, they come from the banana on top of your refrigerator that you forgot. This is kind of the picture here. He says, you're like our basket of summer fruit. You're ready. You're ripe for the judgment of God. He's telling that's in chapter eight. There's something else in chapter eight. That's just, oh, it's frightening. It's chilling. Chapter eight and verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land. What kind of famine? Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
And they will wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to her throat, seeking no word from the Lord, but they will not find it. I don't want to kind of go the wrong direction with this, but it's, isn't it interesting? You wonder as our kids get older and older how far they're going to have to go to find a good church as the years go on where somebody will say, this, thus saith the Lord. The famine in the land for the words of the Lord. A lot of stuff going on, but, but, but more and more, fewer and fewer places are just like, let's open the Bible and let's see what the Bible says and let's preach what the Bible says and let's focus on the Word of God. We go to Sunday school, it's going to be Bibles open. Go to Awana, memorize the Bible, amen? Go to youth group, we got a, We brought Pastor Michael here because he's gifted and trained to teach the Bible because we, we can always do games and fun and we want to do stuff like that, but we want somebody up there with our young people, teaching them the Bible. Our choirs and our, our music here in our church, they're not little like little light-hearted, you know, songs that don't have any biblical teeth, amen? They got rich gospel truth in them. Why? Because this place is devoted to the Bible. But when a judgment comes, you have to go all over the place trying to find a word from the Lord. And you can't have some, you can't hear anybody crying out and giving you the word of the Lord. That is, that's a bad famine. These are visions of judgment. In the middle of that, in chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, was that frightening prophesy, prophecy against Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. In less than 50 years, what, what God told Amos to tell Amaziah and the king happened. 50 years. One more thing here. And by the way, this is all pretty depressing. <laughs> Isn't it pretty depressing? Amos ends his prophecy. He gets there late. Gets there late, but he ends his prophecy the way Almost every other single Old Testament prophecy ends. You know how it ends? It ends with a beautiful description of the promises of God in a golden age that's yet to come. Isn't that amazing? Let's look at it. It's such a rich and beautiful passage. It's in Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. And now up all the way up to chapter 9 and verse 10, all he said is these are different ways that I'm illustrating God's judgment on you. Now he says, on that day, I'll raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, I'll repair its damages and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And they that possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles were called by my name. Ha ha, that's a nice phrase, isn't it? Did you catch that one? All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, tender of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine. All the hills will flow with it. I'll bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land. No longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I've given to them, says the Lord your God. Do you see what God did? He sends Amos to these people and he gives them all like woe and judgment in in a bunch of different ways. Why? Because this is where he wants them to go. If you will repent, you turn to me because I'm the God who wants to restore the earth and restore Israel and reign myself there, the promises. When you read the prophecy of Amos, there are some observations. Let me give them to you quick. One observation is that God judges. I mean, that's kind of obvious already from today's messages, right? All the nations, including Judah and Israel and all the people for all time have to be judged by God. The only way you're going to escape the judgment of God is if somebody else takes it for you. Amen? The only way we're going to escape the judgment of God is somebody else takes our judgment. Can you, can you see the shadow of the cross falling across that? 
Do you, I want I want to, to know, I want to ask you, do you live with awareness of God's power and his holiness that he must judge and that he can judge and that he's powerful enough to restore? Do you, do you live in with a, with a biblical phileo fear of God? Because that's one of these things, that's one of the things that should happen when you read the book of Amos. You should say, oh, this makes me shudder. Oh, God. Don't let me or anybody I love ever fall into your judgment, God. Don't let anybody who lives around me ever fall into your judgment, God. Because you're righteous and you're totally just. And your judgment is inescapable. It's a consuming fire. Take that seriously. You can't escape this if you read this book that God judges. That he can judge, that he will judge, that it's right that he judges. And then you see what God judges. These things arouse the judgment of God in this particular case in Amos. There are other things in other books. God notices what we do with our affluence, with our ease, and with our extra time. He notices if we oppress people. And Amos here, maybe because he, he seems to come from common root, you know, common soil or whatever, maybe, just a guess, he takes the side of the oppressed. Certainly this is the message that God has given him. He takes the side of the oppressed. Listen to some of the things. I'll just read them tonight. You notice them if you read the book of Amos. They're judged for their indifference to God, for forsaking and rejecting his law. They're judged for seeking luxury and pleasure and ignoring God. You know, kind of keeping, building our own little kingdoms of pleasure. Indifference to the poor. In chapter 2, there's something that's kind of chilling. It's a beautiful little thing that God does. Chapter 2, and you notice in verses 11 and 12, here's what it says. I raised up some of your sons as prophets. That's beautiful. When I find places like that in the Bible, I, I mark them. Wouldn't it be wonderful if sons and daughters prophesied? Like the Bible says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. I'll have a word from God. That's pretty cool. And he, what a gift that God would give. It would raise up people in your own home that would have a word for God. I did that for you. And, and then there, the people that were stirred to make Nazarite vows, my goodness, you had to do without things, and God is special. And, and some of your young men as Nazarites. <laughs> is it not so, O children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. Nazarites weren't supposed to drink wine. And you commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. You, I called your sons to be prophets and Nazarites, and you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you told the prophets not to prophesy. You ever see that happen? Oh, yeah, that happens all the time. I don't like kids with some kind of weird fanatic going off and down in a mission field. They can't make any money doing that, can't make a name for themselves, they won't be comfortable. They'll see the grandkids. Really? Really? Is there a God? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is there judgment to come? Is there a reason it'll be on this earth besides watching TV and gathering a few little trinkets that your kids are going to divide up and they're going to, they're going to be out of style by the time they get them? No. This is, uh, this is an interesting and, and really chilling prophecy. And one other thing I want you to see what God is like. Look briefly here at what God is like. And I want you to, this is, this just leaped off the page to me as I read through Amos and listened through Amos a number of times. It's just like, wow. Every once in a while, Amos just takes off and he describes God. And it's as if Amos is a guy who loves nature because he notices the power of God in nature. You see it a little bit later on. But I want you to notice some of the things he says about what God is like. So this is the 
God, Amos' take on the nature of God. Verse uh, 2 of chapter 1, The Lord roars from Zion, utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the pastures and His shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Chapter 2, verse 9, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars, and he was as strong as oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons, and I just read that. This is what God is like, powerful enough to defeat your strongest enemies. Chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Listen to this. This is kind of an enigma. This is kind of a mysterious thing you wouldn't get from your normal, casual first reading. But notice chapter uh, 3, verse 3. You ever hear this phrase, can two walk together except they be agreed? Why is that here? Why does it say, will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? Why does it say that? Can two walk together except they be agreed? Do lions roar if they don't have anything to eat? Hmm. What's that? Verse 5. Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it's caught nothing at all? What's that mean? <laughs> What's that mean? And why is it all clustered here together? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there's calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? Oh, now we're getting it. See what's going on here? He's saying things are cause and effect. For three transgressions or for four, the judgment is going to come. Maybe not right now, but it's coming. Your judgment is going to come. And I'm giving you pictures and sermons and oracles and visions of the judgment of God. I warn you it's going to happen. It may not happen right now, but it's going to happen. He says if, if two are walking together, you know they agreed to walk together. If there's a, a lion roaring, it's because he got something to eat. It's cause and effect. And if there's judgment that falls, you want to look to me because I'm responsible for that. That's what he's saying. This is something about the nature and the character of God. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who will not prophesy? We have the Bible, the word of God. The lion has roared. The lion has roared. And we take the word of God and we tell it to people as his own power. This is telling us what God is like. According to Amos, Chapter 4, verse 13, Behold, he who forms mountains, creates wind, declares to man what his thought is. God makes the mountains and winds, and he knows what you're thinking. <laughs> he makes the morning darkness, and he treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God of hosts is his name. 38 times in this short book, nine chapters, he says, he calls himself the God of hosts, the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven. So Amos is going, I'm here to tell you about the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven, the God of hosts. He's using that as a really wonderful phrase in the Bible. Don't you love it when it says he walks the high places of the earth? You ever see these documentaries where people are trying to climb? And it's like they're all dying trying to climb just to get there for a minute. God just like lightly treads from one mountain range to another. This is power. This is what God is like. Amos knows that he's telling. Chapter 5, verse 8, he made Pleiades and Orion... He turns the shadow of death into morning. He makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea. He pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He rains ruin upon the strong. So that fury comes upon the fortress. This is what God is like. Verse 19 of chapter 5. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. He's saying this about God. Don't think you can escape the judgment of God. I'll get you. 
You run from the lion, the bear will get you. You run from the bear, the snake will bite you. This is the way God is. You can't run from him. This is pretty interesting. Amos has an interesting take on who God is, doesn't he? Chapter 9 and verse 5. Lord, God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts. And, and all who dwell there mourn. And all that shall swell like the river and, and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. This is what God is like. Interesting observations, don't you think? One other thing here, and I think, yeah, uh, God judges, what God judges, what he's like, and you don't have that on your slide, the next one. But I, I have it here, fear not, that he has plans to restore that he has plans to restore, which we already went over, chapter 9, verses 11 and 15. But it's really interesting. This is kind of the, this is where the end of the Bible goes too. God wants us to think back to the garden that was befouled by sin and realize that even though you and I, we live in an earth that's just messed up and very people don't know God. They don't love God. He's like, I'm going to bring everything to a culmination when I restore the garden like it never was before. There's a restored creation and a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven and earth, more beautiful than anyone can ever imagine. I don't know how discouraged you are, what you've been through, or how frustrated you are, but you, when God touches you about your sin or anything that's out of order, quickly repent, as we mentioned this morning. Keep the knee bent and your heart humble and tender. Be quick to be tender and humble before God. Fast and pray and seek the Lord because we're headed for a garden one day to beat all gardens for a, for a worldwide, like, park that God designed and created. And Jesus himself will physically, personally reign there. And those of us who know the Lord will be there with him. Chuck Swindoll, at the end of his message, gave two applications. I thought I'd share this with you because I thought it was kind of interesting and humorous and clear. He said, so if you're Israel, if you're like Israel, repent. And if you're like Amos, speak. Pretty good, I thought. Dawson Trotman, one time witnessed to a woman, got her aside there in like kind of party. He was a founder of the Navigators. He, he was a disciple maker, witnessed to everybody he could. And this lady is having a conversation at a party and he just urgently was pleading with her to be saved. Then he gave her the gospel and finally, you know, she walked away and she went out and got in the car with her husband and they were driving away. And she began to tell her husband what he said. And he said to her, my goodness, um, why didn't you tell that man to mind his own business? She said, if you'd have been there and you'd heard him talk, you would have thought it was his business. This is our business. Your neighbors are lost. Your family members are lost. They're headed for God's judgment. It's just as certain as rain. It's going to happen. So what are we going to do? This is, a, this is a challenge. May God use us to forsake our sin and cry out against sin. And who does that anymore? Who do you know that cries out against sin? The little happy things that people say to kind of like adjust people's lives so they'd be more successful. But who cries out against sin? Real prophets of God. That's who cries out against sin. And may God use us to, to be missional in our thinking, missionary in our thinking, evangelistic in our thinking, making disciples in our thinking, missionary in our thinking. May our church be it, like never before, a missionary, disciple-making, evangelistic church. Sometimes I'm frustrating you talking about that, but we're, it's okay that you have that burden on your heart. If you have a burden on your heart to do that, you say, God, I don't know how to do that. You got to show me how the pastor keeps harping on me. I can't go to church anymore because he keeps harping on me about this. 
God, I don't know what to do because the pastor won't let me alone. He keeps saying that. It's like, God's going to show you a way. God's going to give you something simple and sweet to do to be a missionary where you are. We'll help you. We'll give you coaches and stuff like that. We're, we got all kinds of plans, but hey, what I'm saying here, may God raise us up to be, make missional discipleship teams and make disciples and may God bring our church evangel to our knees over and over again in, in humble prayer. Wouldn't it be something if we started coming like 30, I don't know, we would have messed things up. We could change our schedule around and we have a time when all the members meet together to pray. Wouldn't that be great? Or maybe we could have little groups that kind of spread out. And we all found a place to... And every single one of us prayed. Men and women and teens and young people, children, we all just got on our knees and said, God, help us. We're not sure how to do it. Help us reach this city. There's a guy... Give me a couple more minutes. There's a guy named David Wilkerson. And years ago, he was a pastor in Pennsylvania. Again, no education, just kind of rough around the edges. Pentecostal pastor in Pennsylvania. You know the story, David Wilkerson, you watch the movie The Cross and the Switchblade. You kind of refresh your memory. So he sees this picture in Life magazine of these thugs in New York that killed this guy, stomped this kid to death. And he decides he's going to go to their trial. And he's going to speak at their trial. He's not invited. He's not allowed. He just decides he's going to step and wave the Bible and start speaking at their trial. Would you have told him to do that or not to do that? I might have said, I might have said I'm not sure that's the best way. Why don't you visit the guys in jail later? He goes and he gets thrown out. They throw him out of court. They say, get out of here. The judge just throws him immediately out. End of the game, right? He goes back to Pennsylvania, tail between his legs. He's defeated, right? Completely defeated. His father comes along and he says, I think you need to go back. Go back. I mean, I went there before the judge threw me out. I got in trouble with the police. He goes back. So he starts to talk to these thugs on the street, these gang members on the street. And they go, I recognize you. You're the guy that the police threw out of court. You must be a good guy. We'll listen to you. And they listened. And they founded this Teen Challenge thing that the cure rate at Teen Challenge for addiction cure is 85% established by the U.S. government. Christian organization, hardcore Christian organization. Isn't it interesting? He said, though, he and his brother did not know what they were doing. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know. They just obeyed the Lord. And that's what I'm saying to you. As members of Evangel, let's obey the Lord. Let's just pray. And let's say, God, show me what you want me to do. I'm quiet. I'm not sure I have these gifts or those gifts. That's okay. What do you want me to do? Get with somebody who's loud. You know, you quiet, loud, carry his back. I don't know. Figure it out. And let's see what we can do so that the 600 members of Evangel live up to their name. Amen? Pastor.